welcome to Phoenix Foundation, an episode-by-episode podcast review of CBS's action-adventure series, MacGyver. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we'll be tackling Season 1, Episode 20, The Escape. This episode originally aired on April 16th, 1986. It was directed by Don Chaffee, and uh, uh, Chaffee actually came back uh, for Season 2, Episode 19 of MacGyver, uh, Bushmaster. And it was written by Fred McKnight and Stephen Candell. Um, Stephen Candell, obviously, done a lot for the show so far. Uh, this is actually the first episode to involve Fred McKnight's writing, but he was a story editor on the last four episodes. So he started right, right. with To Be a Man, Ugly Duckling, Slow Death, and This. And uh, he wrote, co-wrote this episode, and this is unfortunately his last contribution to the show. Right. But he was a, a producing consultant or production consultant on Blue Thunder. Yeah, which is uh, where the helicopter came from. The helicopter from the pilot came from Blue Thunder. So um, he, this was the TV show he was a production consultant mm-hmm. okay. on. But uh, I think they probably used the same helicopter from the movie for oh, the show. Well, you got the helicopter. I mean, you might as well. Yeah, I mean, if you're loaning it out to MacGyver as a show, then yeah. you definitely have, have it for TV use. Uh, yeah, so why don't we get into uh, sort of the brief description of the episode. Well, in this episode, while MacGyver is in North Africa, he is propositioned by a young woman to help break her brother out of a local prison. Right. And so MacGyver takes the assignment. Right. Um, and going a little further in depth, um, they do refer to it early on as North Africa. Yeah. Which uh, I was trying to dispute whether or not this is supposed to be Northern Africa, like just... In, in a generalized reference to the upper half of the continent. Yeah. Or if they're implying that this is a fictional, like, opposite to South Africa. Right, for, for the sake of the plot. Um, but the, you, had, you had made the point that there does seem to be a heavy French presence. Yeah. Which makes it feel sort of Moroccan. Or Algerian. Like, yeah, some... some um, and more, more likely Mediterranean coastal kind of outlying land which which sort of would imply it that it's a northern africa situation and un- unless they're just saying there's a tiny country called north africa in this yeah, same jumble i of... think they're just impl- i think the, the 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 it just says north africa just to say it's in the the northern part of africa sure. i don't know why they didn't say northern but uh but either way it starts with him he's playing soccer with these children at uh, this monastery um, and there's a, sort of a the sisters just watching him play and mm-hmm. and kind of laughing about it. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know MacGyver takes a little bit of a break, and you hear the like pipe organ music, and apparently that's one of the things he was there for was to paint. fix the organ. They they make multiple references to a recent earthquake that doesn't yeah. seem to play really into the story not, of the episode. Not at all. Uh, but um, apparently somehow this organ was damaged in the earthquake, and mm-hmm. he he was able to make the adjustments to fix it. Right. Yeah, it's, it, we're not even really clear why MacGyver is there. We're assuming he, he had either completed an assignment recently in the area and stopped by or... I think MacGyver caused a massive explosion that was misinterpreted as an earthquake. That's my theory. He used the power of the moon to create an earthquake to thwart an enemy. Or maybe there was an episode they were writing that involved an earthquake that was felt worldwide. <laughs> and then they ended up not using that episode yeah. but referred back to it here. All that's, speculation. That's a huge leap I'm making. <laughs> Save that for the movie. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Mother Superior, uh, sister or Sister Anne, she's referred to as both. Sure. Um, you know, she's grateful to MacGyver for for fixing the organ, 
and uh, at this point, a truck and another sports car pull up. Now, the truck is what MacGyver is waiting for because it's full of like these metal rods, and uh, for a surprise he's putting together. Yeah, and um, but then in the sports car, this young blonde woman who uh, named Sarah Ashford, played by Christina Wayborn, who who is a another Bond actress. Right, she was Magda in Octopus. Yeah. She comes with some donations, and Sister Anne seems to know her. She's like, oh, Sarah, thank you so much. And uh, and that's when she introduces Sarah to MacGyver, saying that Sarah needs a favor. And, and she sort of fills in Sarah's backstory for her that she yeah. works with, like, they work to help children. And mm-hmm. and, uh, and clearly she must have asked or mentioned to Sister Anne that her brother was in a prison or that her brother needed help. I got the impression that she might not have even explained that her brother was in prison. But mm. she said, my brother needs help. Do you know anyone who can help him? Yeah. Which is weird that she's even going to the monastery with this kind of a request. Yeah, it, it, if it, she's not intentionally seeking out MacGyver. Yeah, it, it's it's very unclear her connection to this monastery at this point. Uh, and so that's when you know Sarah just lays on lays it out cold to MacGyver. I need you to break my brother out of prison. Right, and, and it's sort of like bombshell style, like slow zoom on her face, like he's in a prison and you need to break him out. It's like, oh, well, is that all? And as an audience, we have no reason to trust this woman yet, so we're like, oh, this sounds like you're a bad guy. But then they yeah. sort of drop that as soon as they continue the conversation. Yeah, which you know, which they immediately like cut to a restaurant. And this is the second mention of the earthquake. Mm-hmm. She says, right after the earthquake, he was arrested. Yeah, like because he was bringing in relief supplies, to to you know, to medical supplies, food, and all that stuff, and yeah, and because of the corrupt government, uh, everything was intercepted. Yeah, and, and he was put in prison to prevent him from like seeking any kind of justice for. Yeah, MacGyver sees the outrage, you know, in the situation that her brother was wrongfully imprisoned, right, and he. Whether, whether or not he doesn't, he doesn't seem to owe any more favors to Sister Anne, but Sister Anne did kind of imply like. Hey, would you help this person? And he was like, oh, I can't say no to her. Yeah. So uh, MacGyver's kind of roped into this. And then, you know, they start coming up with a plan. Her part of the plan just is basically involves getting cars. Um, although she already has a car. But I guess maybe they need they need another car that can't be traced back to her. Yeah. Um, and MacGyver's part of the plan is to get thrown in jail. Right. And, Which he explains is very easy in this part of the world. Yeah. Uh, again, corrupt government, corrupt police. So he sees like this uh, old street, old man, street peddler, kind of like just being hassled by a couple of police officers. Yeah, they basically kick him to the ground. Yeah, they're like knocking his table over and everything like that. So MacGyver kind of comes in like, like, yeah, guys, you know, beat this way to go. That's what I like to see. Yeah, my tax somehow dollars. they don't pick up on the sarcasm at all. They're just uh, like, oh wow, this is the first time we've actually just had someone applaud our yeah our assault of the citizenry. We've been doing this for years and no one ever thanks us. <laughs> Dude, this is really a thankless job, mostly because we're terrible at it. <laughs> um, and so MacGyver, under this guise of like cheering on these men, says, "How about a soda pop?" And, and he just takes him off of the street vendor's yeah, cart. Like, like dude, I'm just, stealing from the guy. Look, I'm part of your group. Yeah. And uh, he just shakes and sprays it all over him. Uh, Second episode in a row that someone gets carbonated soda water in the face. Yeah. Uh, and MacGyver just knows that the outcome of this is going to be 
being sent to jail. Go right. directly to jail. Yeah, and the cut there is so great because he's just like, all right, come on. Yeah, <laughs> here it comes. I'm ready for it. And cut immediately to him in the prison truck getting loaded up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's a fun edit. And uh, he, we're introduced to the commandant of this prison who's basically laying out the rules. Uh, you're, 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 you're less than dirt. You're nothing here. In fact, you, we don't even give you any food or water. It's up to you. You have to, f- to earn it while you're inside. Yeah, you have to find work while you're in the prison in order to buy food and water for yourself. Yeah. Which, you know, and, and during this time, like, uh, we see uh, the character of Francois Villar. Villar. Villar? Francois I would say Villar. Villar. Um, uh, is kind of, like, listening in as he's cleaning the commandant's office, which is obviously how he pays for his food and things. Is that yeah, he, with information. and Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, MacGyver, he walks MacGyver out, and Francois, like, kind of introduces himself and says, did you really assault two police officers? And he's like, yeah, yeah. To protect a street vendor. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, it was worth it or whatever. Yeah. And so Francois is impressed and, like, sees that he's, like, a civilized man in this uncivilized uh, little prison and decides just to kind of, like, take him under his wing and uh, show him around. And the the first thing on the grounds that they he takes him by is uh, one of the prisoners named Khan who is just basically like a drug dealer but because he's got a couple of guys working for him and he supplies the commandant with information he's pretty much free to do whatever he wants in the prison yeah it's it's kind of a law-abiding citizen situation he's able to commit all the crime that he did on the outside but from within his own yeah imprisonment mm-hmm. and, and he he's quick to remind macgyver oh don't stare at him he doesn't like it when you stare at him yeah which is funny that he even knows that like yeah. Don't most people not like that, first of all? Yeah, Second of yeah. all, how long did you test this theory? <laughs> I'm going to see how to test it with each person. All yeah. right. That, mind, that guy, this guy over there it. loves it when you stare at him. <laughs> Don't stare at him. <laughs> he, he look, they look over and he's waving. <laughs> <laughs> so Khan, to his aside, to his muscle, Fwad, uh, the guy's name is Fwad, yeah. uh, uh, he says, I want to know more about this guy. Uh, see what you can find out, because... There's like only so many kinds of Americans who get sent here, and that's drug dealers, soldiers of fortune, or madmen. Right. And uh, he wants to know because he's got an ad campaign he wants to pitch. Yeah. To this madman. <laughs> <laughs> that's a terrible joke. Why did you let me do that? <laughs> it's okay. I can edit it out. <laughs> because he's got an ad campaign he wants to pitch to this madman. Francois takes him back to his cell, and we we get a, we get a good impression of the people who are able to live well. In this prison, and Francois seems to live at least moderately well. Yeah, he's comfortable. Yeah, the cells aren't locked. Uh, inside, he's got like a nice bureau with a couple of like little trinkets on there. He's been there for five years, so he's probably had to do some things, mm-hmm. you know, to 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 live in this kind of well. But he seems. It seems like he also has access to some sort of a line that food is coming in. Yeah, yeah, he's he's got like olive oil. And he's got. Uh, but doesn't he also give pastries to one of the guards at one point? Yeah, and or he has the ability to make pastries. Yeah. Um. So, uh, so maybe he works in the kitchen too as a side. Sure. Job. Yeah. Uh, he's very well connected. This this is the Morgan Freeman of this prison. Yeah, or the uh, the scrounger, uh, the James Garner character in The Great Escape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's guy with, guy gets things done. Yeah. Or can get you what you need to get things done. 
So MacGyver's first call of action or first plan, part of the plan is to signal Sarah that he's inside and he's alive. You know, and that he's, I, he got put in the correct prison. Yeah. <laughs> um, Which is, I guess, a risk he was taking. Yeah. He he borrows some olive oil in a newspaper and uh, Francois's soccer ball in order to make a paper mache balloon. Which, you know, right. it, it's this weird little, it's a weird kind of signal. I guess, you know, it is, it does stand out. Yeah. But it's weird that, that everyone just kind of like is like in awe of it. Like, oh, wow, well, he, like, he made a They're balloon. so blown away by a paper lantern. Yeah. It's like, I want to do that. Maybe we'll do that with Arts and Crafts tomorrow. Maybe we can do it every year on the princess's birthday. <laughs> but the problem that I have with this is that he doesn't have enough fuel to light the the cotton small ball. yeah the cotton ball that's supposed to be like the propellant of this whole mini hot air balloon type thing so when he lets go of it the combustible piece is gone within yeah. like 12 seconds out. but it's still rising and I, it seems like it's being tugged into the air I, like, I don't know i feel like i feel like the wind could probably catch it maybe and it, and, but and it, it doesn't look like it's blowing around the way it would just from a breeze though yeah it's it's kind of just if it is, it's going in, like, one direction, which is kind of odd, and it's spiraling in such a way that it kind of makes it, like you said, like, it looks like it might be on a line. But either way, it seems perfectly timed, because she just pulled over and got out of yeah. the car to look for it, and she can see it there, so she knows, okay, he's in there. And so her next step is to visit, at p- portraying his wife, mm-hmm. um, to get the information that he to collect the information that he's gotten so far inside and to give right. him more information. Yeah, and uh, MacGyver is now collecting that information. He's asking Francois about uh, Brian Ashford, who is in the political wing. It's very heavily guarded. All the cells are bugged, and he needs to get in there to to see him. Right. And but this is where uh, Fouad Fouad, God, his name is I don't. Know, it's so I see. F-U-A-D, you know, and yeah. I think, I want to say Fuad. Yeah. Fuad. It'd be easier if it was F-W-A-D. Yeah. Uh, Fuad. For us Americans, it would be easier. Yeah, exactly. Come on. Uh, Spell your names right, foreigners. <laughs> but, uh, it's full yeah. of foreigners here. Fuad here is, is played by uh, Mike Moroff, who uh, uh, later would play uh, Pancho, Pancho Villa in Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Okay. Yeah. I, I liked that show. Yeah. It was all right. How many episodes of that were there? Not that many. I don't think it finished uh, its first season. Yeah, Sean Patrick Flannery, like, uh, the, yeah, I think maybe like 13, maybe at the most. 13. Yeah. That's too bad. Uh, so Fuad grabs MacGyver and says that Khan wants to see him, and, uh, you know, MacGyver kind of gives him a little bit of a hassle, and Fuad knocks him to the ground, and while he's busy, like, cheering himself on, MacGyver grabs a chair and just hits him. Yeah, full on WWE style. <laughs> then is like crawling along the ground it puts his face precariously above a bench yeah and just MacGyver just jumps and whacks him in the face like rake Sideshow Bob Rake style yeah he uh, basically this bench ends up functioning as like a teeter-totter and MacGyver just steps hard on one end of it so that it lifts up the opposite end and it just cracks mm-hmm. a guy in the chin and knocks him out but at this point like I feel it's really unfair like Khan sends two other guys to get to grab hold of MacGyver so Fouad can like just start beating on him. Yeah. Just to take the fight out of him, I guess. And then immediately tells Fouad he can't fight him anymore. Yeah. So back at uh, Khan's place, which is now, 
we've seen Francois's place. Now Khan's place is much more elaborate. Still a cell though. Like there's still a cell door. Right. Um, although it does have an antechamber. Like it's got another room inside the cell. It's yeah. Like, it's like a very spacious cell with a refrigerator in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we uh, hear music playing, but it's it's out of phase. Yeah, like the speakers are kind of not wired properly. And so MacGyver gets tossed in by these henchmen and just drops on the rug. And then Khan gives him like a, like a towel. towel, like "Don't bleed on my carpet." I brought you here for a reason. Right. And so to kind of like start impressing Khan, he fixes his his uh, speaker system. Which contrasts him with a knife right away. Like, yeah. give me this so I can fix your speaker system. He's mm-hmm. He's got a very uh, Lisa Allen uh, approach to handing over knives to potentially right. dangerous intruders. <laughs> and, and here, I, I think this is also kind of like a setup, too, to something that happens later in the episode. Because he's, he, MacGyver has a knife. He's like, can I borrow this? And it's like, huh. Like he's looking to stab Khan. And you see Fouad, like, even uh, kind of get ready to, like, to come in, to come in. But then you see... MacGyver used it as a screwdriver. Right. And Khan kind of waves Fuad off like, yeah. it's not that big a deal. And but uh, so he brings the, the speakers back into phase so they're not uh, they're not off sync with each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, from there, like, MacGyver says, oh, you know, I could probably fix your PCP lab as well. And, like, Khan's like, what? How did you know about that? Because, you know, MacGyver's saying, like, oh, I can hear the refrigerator running. They say you deal drugs. It's the easiest drug to make. Yeah. And, uh, and I saw the ventilation shaft, and so yeah. I put two and two together, basically. And so MacGyver is like, telling him, like, I can, I can fix that and increase your output using my formula. <laughs> and remember, you know, I think it was seven episodes back uh, in uh, Flame's End, we learned that MacGyver has a physics degree. Yeah. He's essentially offering himself up as a Heisenberg for this guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which we actually have another Breaking Bad character uh, in this episode. Who is that? John Delancey. I've never saw Breaking Bad. So. Oh, he's in he's in Breaking Bad. He's a great character. In oh, great! Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay. He's an important character for the second season. Oh, dang! Now I have to watch it. Yeah. Um. And uh, but I just think it's funny that like the MacGyver has a PCP formula because like what if he actually was like being watched and he actually had to go through the process? Um, I'm kind of curious as to how good his formula is. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh. So basically, like the deal is he'll help Khan if Khan can get him to see. Ashford, uh, who's in the political wing. And Khan makes good on his deal, knowing that the cells are bugged. He doesn't know that MacGyver knows. He um, also says, why do you want to see him? And, yeah. and he says, well, it's a private matter, or mm-hmm. he's an old friend, or something like that. Yeah. And then he says, oh, well, maybe Fuad can beat it out of you. And he's like, okay, well, you can't get the information out of me if I'm dead. So, And then he says, all right, I think we have an understanding. Mm-hmm. Go talk to your friend in private. Uh, but in reality, Khan has gone and told the Commandant that MacGyver is planning to go talk to Ashford and have an exchange, a private exchange. Right. And that this is something probably that the Commandant That they'll want to listen on to. Exactly. And so uh, MacGyver makes it into Brian Ashford's cell. Well, he's, he's an exercise time, which is just another cell, but outside. Right. So, that, that, you know, because you get fresh air. That's your exercise. Yeah. That's um, all you need, really. So MacGyver comes in and starts kind of going along those lines of like, oh, I'm here to get you out right away. Like right out of the gate, he's like, I'm here to get you out. And you could tell that Ashford's kind of like, uh, maybe you shouldn't be talking about this. Um, and uh, that's when he writes in chalk on his yeah, hand. I don't know really how that would work. You'd need like a white crayon of some sort. Yeah, like maybe a it wax was a crayon. crayon or something, yeah. Uh, but it, he writes play along on his hand. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
so yeah we were like joking like it's like he's like play along what does that mean like if he like just openly like said it out loud yeah um so macgyver starts laying out this groundwork of this of his fake escape plan of helicopters coming in opening fire up on the on the grounds while they make a chance to get to one of the helicopters and fly out and john delancey's doing an amazing job of playing along yeah his his improv skills here yeah. are, are blowing macgyver away and there's a there's some really good banter between the two of them because MacGyver kind of t- looks over John Delancey as Brian Ashford and says, you're not really what I expected to see in a medical missionary. Right. And we should mention here that uh, John Delancey and Richard Dean Anderson have actually worked together a number of times. Yeah. Um, um, the work, oh, spe- well, after the show especially. I mean, right, yeah. Because uh, uh, we'll come to see uh, – this is a MacGyver tangent, by the way. Um, there's going to be one or two episodes of MacGyver where it's not MacGyver – it takes place in the old West and Richard Dean Anderson is playing this kind of frontier character. Right. Totally unrelated to the series of MacGyver, but somehow an episode of MacGyver. Yeah. Um, and I think that was the inspiration for this spinoff show that came you know, not, not a spinoff show, but a completely different show. Yeah. Follow up. Um, in the vein of more of like the original wild wild West or Briscoe County yeah. called legend. And, uh, which, and that features John Delancey. Yeah. John Delancey is like his, his professor Wickwire of Briscoe County, uh, on that show, and uh, and then I think you said was Professor that, Wickwire Chris Lloyd in Briscoe County. Uh, no, it's a uh, John Aston, Sean Aston. Oh, father. okay. Um, uh, and he also uh, makes uh, regular appearances in uh, SG One, Stargate SG One. John Delancey. John Delancey does. does. Yeah. So yeah, the the two of them have worked on on all three of these shows together. MacGyver is the first mm-hmm. of the three, um, but uh, also. Um, I, I wanted to mention too that uh, John Delancey plays a, a fun recurring character uh, in a couple episodes of The West Wing. Um, he's this guy in California who, uh, basically, he and Josh are fighting over Marley Matlin's character for a number I, of episodes. I didn't even know Marley Matlin was on. Oh uh, yeah, West yeah, she's Wing. great on there. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and obviously John Delancey uh, played Q in quite oh, a few episodes of Star Trek. Uh, he's in it looks like three Voyagers. Eight next generations, one deep space nine. Well, he was he was the driving force for the next generation, right? And he he buttoned the show beginning and end, right? Um, as Q, and uh, but he's perhaps best known as Ted in Multiplicity. <laughs> um, best known. <laughs> he is uh, he's trying to steal Michael Keaton's job. Yeah. That's a good movie though. Multiplicity. If you haven't seen it, go check it out again. It, I feel it's underrated. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> this is way off tangent here. Um, but uh, I was talking to somebody about this yesterday because I just realized Groundhog Day is on Netflix. Watch it now. And I feel like the inspiration for that movie was basically someone complaining that they didn't have enough time to do things and mm-hmm. thought, like, well, if I could live the same day over and over and over again, I could make all this kind of progress, like personal progress. Right. Um, and, and I would have all the time in the world to do whatever I wanted with. And then I feel like multiplicity is just a continuation of the same idea. Like, if there were a bunch of me going around doing all the things I have to do all day. Mm-hmm. But... Um, they're both directed by Harold Ramis. Yeah. And I feel like Multiplicity may have even been written as a Bill Murray vehicle originally. And after his sort of falling out with Harold Ramis, they switched over to Michael Keaton. But anyway, back to John Delancey. Yeah, John Delancey. So there's some really great banter with them in the cell where, uh, you know, MacGyver says, you're not what I expected in a medical missionary. And, 
And he says, well, believe it or not, I used to raise a little hell before I believed in heaven and even occasionally pulled off a minor miracle. Like, and, and then like MacGyver says something like, and then his response is, well, I pray you're successful. Like, yeah. it, it's like, he's really hamming up the medical thing. Cause he, he realizes that that's the cover story he's been given. Yeah. And so, yeah, he, MacGyver is sort of accidentally revealing the entire backstory that, that this woman has written for. Exactly. The character. Cause we're going to come to find out more about these characters here. Um, so now that the plan is established for an aerial assault, um, there's a MacGyver has to fulfill it because the commandant and Khan are expecting it. That the, the commandant's got all the guards scrambled and ready to go. So, but he needs more information. Like, right. So MacGyver now goes to fix Khan's uh, PCP lab, and there's this great scene like where Fouad is standing outside. And MacGyver's all, hey, big guy. And, like, MacGyver goes, like, and taps on the door and Frog just, just go in. <laughs> like, like, yeah. like, don't be all, don't, don't make it so dramatic. Uh, in Khan's, uh, in Khan's lab, uh, you know, refrigerator, chemicals, perfect for MacGyver. This is, like, this is, like, pay dirt for MacGyver. Yeah. This is, like, everything he could possibly need for his plan is in this room. He could make a large Hadron Collider in this room. <laughs> yeah. It would be a small Hadron Collider, I guess. Yeah, yeah, because it would be in the refrigerator, like, radiator. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But before he goes in, he grabs a tape recorder off off Khan's table. And so now he's he's been locked alone in the PC lab, in the PCP lab. I keep saying PC like it's a computer lab. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he starts, like, coming up... He's really using a lot of weird stuff. Like he he put, he tapes a spatula to a ceiling fan to get the recording the helicopter for, for a helicopter sound. Yeah. Um, he steals some PCP and puts it in the pocket of his jacket, um, and like and covers it in like a flammable liquid to be ignited as a bomb. Right. Uh, the the only useful thing about PCP is that it's explosive or something yeah. like that. Because apparently he didn't know it was a drug you can take. It's just amazing. <laughs> And you may end up eating someone's face. <laughs> right. No, that you're thinking of bath salts. That's a whole different thing. Um, I, he must also make time to fix the refrigerator, because it's making it a lot of noise, and it's, it's expected to stop making that noise by the time he's done. Yeah. If he doesn't fix the fridge, then he's really running into suspicious yeah. territory. Because his plan, his plan is dependent on them not going in the lab because. He sets up a wash tub, metal wash tub, with a block of ice and a whole bunch of uh, the chemicals, and he's got some, he got some wires. I just to pull them out of the wall or something. Yeah, and um, since he can't set like a specific timer on this whole electrical even, system, even though he does on another electrical system yeah. later in the for episode. whatever reason, this this particular system needs to be activated manually. Um, and he makes the point that ice melts at a at a constant rate at, when it's in a consistent temperature. Yeah. And so um, the the theory is that these wires that are separated, basically the ground is connected to the bucket to mm-hmm. complete the circuit, and that ice, as the ice melts and the wires brought closer and closer to the bucket, that it will eventually complete the circuit by either arcing or by touching it. Yeah. Um, and then that'll start the recording that's hooked up to the. No, no, no this this is what sets off the explosion. Oh, okay. Yeah, see, the recording is actually connected to an the actual timer. timer. Okay. <laughs> uh, would have been nice if he had two of those. Yeah. But, um, yeah, uh, uh, Francois takes the 
the jacket and the tape recorder with the recording. Uh, the tape recorder with the recording. Believe it or not, there is a recording on that tape recorder. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just a blank tape. Uh, hi, kids. We're home early. <laughs> Stop drooling on me. <laughs> um, uh, so Francois delivers the jacket to uh, Brian Ashford with the bomb in it and gives him the code. And like he's like making – like Francois is like making talk, small talk with the guard – and the guard's all, I'm going to miss you when you go, Francois. I was like, I know, I miss you too, but if I was going to leave, I'd leave today at noon. Like, kind of like winking over to... Could this be any more obvious? <laughs> I doubt it. Wink, wink, wink. Signal. Uh, signal, signal, like the jacket on fire. <laughs> um, and uh, in the meantime, he also takes the recording and the timer to the Commandant's office and switches on the mic because the Commandant now is outside with the guard's sweeping the skies for the impending helicopters that will be coming. Yeah, they put people up on the roofs with, with guns, and they have mm-hmm. people out in the yard just getting ready for this aerial assault that's right. supposedly coming. So, uh, uh, at this point, though, Khan might be making a move against the Commandant. We don't really know. But he's demanding more information from MacGyver about the money and who his contacts on the outside are. Uh, so... MacGyver needs them to not to go into the PC, PCP lab, right? Because uh, he's got, you know, obviously it's not really functioning. So to get them as far away as possible, he says, "I have this Swiss bank account number and all the information across the way." Yeah, let's go, and I'll take you to it. Which I'm assuming he just wrote down Stepan's Swiss bank account number. Yeah, <laughs> it's one seven seven nine. You can just wire out as much as you want. Yeah, he be kept a lot saying it the whole way there. <laughs> I got the Swiss bank account one seven seven nine. Yeah, we know Stepan. Thank you. Yeah, we figured it out. Um, you maybe, don't need any Maybe ID. don't tell anyone <laughs> the account number if you're looking to keep that money. Um, and I think this is where the setup I mentioned earlier with the knife, he says, well, can I borrow this? And you think he's going to, it's going to be an aggressive motion. But now this time, MacGyver says, can I borrow your knife? And Fawad is very reasonably to hand over, like he just totally hands it over. And he stabs Fawad in the neck. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what happens. Never saw it coming. Um... I think he does it to get the knife away from Fouad, so when he, when the, when everything starts happening, because he says he buried it under a fire, which is actually kind of clever. Yeah, he said no one would ever check under a fire. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't, because it would destroy whatever you put under there. Right. Not if you buried it deep enough. Yeah. Um, so he's like filling up a bucket with ashes, and at, at that that moment that the timer on the tape recorder goes off, which starts the of a helicopter sound which was actually just him tapping on a ceiling fan yeah with a with a spatula right and uh so now all the guards are freaking out they're saying oh the helicopters are coming they sound the alarms and uh so MacGyver takes this moment to throw the bucket of ashes in Fouad's face and just punch Khan in the face because Khan's not yeah Fouad strong... deserves it yeah what a jerk Fouad um and then shortly after that the uh, PCP lab blows up when the ice melts and the wire contacts the metal tub. And so there go all your drugs. Yep, all the drugs blow up. So you don't even have drugs to cheer you up at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Harsh MacGyver. <laughs> You're really killing this buzz. <laughs> uh, and now Brian Ashford hears the commotion because the guards all rush out. So he wraps the bomb uh, bomber jacket, uh, although it's not a bomber jacket. No. Uh he wraps it around the door lock and lights it on fire, blows his lock open, 
And uh, Francois was waiting for him in the hallway, which I thought was kind of weird. Yeah. Like, because I'm sure the guards must have seen him. Um, it's really interesting, too, the construction of this hallway, how narrow it is. And I was like, that kind of makes sense, because if this was, like, a really high security wing, and everyone, if there's, like, an escape and everyone's breaking You'd out... You'd want to be able to block off the passage as quickly as possible. Exactly. Like, that they, can know, they can't move any more than single file, and if you just, like, put some debris or just start opening fire, you'll you'll clog up the opening pretty fast. I wonder what this location was, if it was an actual abandoned prison, or if they were using some other facility yeah. to double for it. Because it's obviously, like, a lot of concrete. And it has watchtowers and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Well, I think the watchtowers they built because they blow them up. But they blew up also an uncompleted bridge. <laughs> That's true. In the previous episode. So, um, it's basically total chaos out on the in the yard. Like, guards are looking for the helicopters. Uh, at this point, Sarah Ashford, outside, has just driven the car through the main gate. Uh, and Which she should have just done in the first place. Yeah, it, just it, drive right in, get Brian, and then turn around. Yeah, it, it seemed like it was that simple. Like, the... the, the Overly elaborate distraction. Do you say overly elaborate? Overly irreverent. <laughs> the, the overly rabbit distraction. The irreverent distraction. Um, MacGyver's overly elaborate distraction. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Cut and print. <laughs> Tune in next week. We're going to be covering season one, episode twenty-one, "Prisoner of Conscience." Prisoner of Conches. (laughs) AKA Lord of the Flies. I've got so many shells. (laughs) I feel like I'm trapped by them. (laughs) Why do we get so loopy towards the end? (laughs) What's exciting about this part of the story? is MacGyver, Brian Ashford runs out, and he says, let's go, like, to Sarah. Like, as if abandoning MacGyver. Right. Um, and then MacGyver kind of does, like, a hug to Francois, saying, like, you know, farewell, my friend. Because uh, Francois only has a few months left on his sentence, and he doesn't want to jeopardize it by being a fugitive. Sure. So MacGyver runs out, but the car's still there. So you think that's, like, a weird little twist that doesn't actually play out. However does play out in mere moments right when we find out that not only are brian ashford and sarah ashford, but i think that's because she's behind the wheel yeah see um the plan this whole plan now we find out is was a lie right so, as soon as they they get away from the prison they pull over in an alleyway and suddenly she's firing two shots into the engine block of the car they just escaped with yeah um, to to disable if there is which we hear sirens the right. stops here. Um, and then Brian Ashford goes okay great well we can kill MacGyver now because we don't need him anymore yeah and, and MacGyver's like huh yeah the, the, this is like this is a probably a pretty rare occasion where MacGyver is was, totally blindsided yeah totally taken in uh, and uh, again more banter from John Delancey says well blind faith tends to do that to you yeah um, but MacGyver says, no, I think it was Sister Anne's confidence. But he, he really should have asked Sister Anne, like, how well do you know this person before he agreed to break yeah. someone out of a prison? Because Sarah must have must have established herself in some kind of – in order for Sister Anne to be so appreciative of her yeah, to say, MacGyver, you should help this woman. She's a good woman. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of like there's, there's some of this weight on Sister Anne in yeah. all this. 
Not that she's made to account for any of it. Yeah. In fact, we give her a whole bunch of money. Yeah. Um, but uh, Sarah doesn't want to kill MacGyver. You know, she says, you know, she's she admits to being a, a Soviet agent, not so much a spy, but a, at least a dealer of some kind. And not that, unlike our a previous Bond girl, uh, BB Doll from Yeah, uh, for your eyes only. And uh, but she doesn't want to kill MacGyver. She says that Brian Ashford is actually an arms dealer that she was supposed to buy weapons for from. And uh, though you know, but the police had caught wind. There's a, there's a lot of explanation here. Sorry, yeah, it's, people. it's kind of a clunky um, situation. But basically, a deal was supposed to happen between her and Brian. Yeah, things got broken up, and the the weapons were taken, and they're still they have the money, but they don't have the weapons. Uh, no, John Delancey as Brian Ashford. Oh, he hid the money. He, he you know he hid the weapons. Oh, okay. I thought he, he hid twelve million dollars. No, no, no. He uh, the n- money never entered into this. Oh, okay. Because he was going to get paid by her for the weapons on delivery. Right. But instead, I guess she paid for the weapons, and he was going to get them. Or so, at some point, like he was already paid by her, I think, and he stole the weapons back, hid them so he could resell them to somebody else. Okay. And she needed him out of prison because he was the only one who knew where the weapons were hidden. Right. And so I guess their plan was, uh, if you get me out, I'll give you the weapons. Although, he's already double-crossed her once. Yeah, I don't know why she wouldn't expect yeah. it again. And then he does again, because he drives off shooting at MacGyver, and she tries to get the gun away from him because she doesn't want MacGyver to get killed. Um, and now leaving them both to be arrested, potentially. So uh, MacGyver and Sarah are forced to team up again on foot. Yeah. And it's really unclear how they follow him. Because they said, oh, the weapons have to be at the harbor area. I don't know why they have to be there. But like, if you knew that they had to be there, why don't you check around there before you bother breaking this guy out of prison? Yeah, exactly. It, it seems so unnecessary. Um, but her and MacGyver have this whole argument about uh, trust and lies. And, and, she, and, and like, it's funny. Like, like, oh, you used me. So she, she, and she's like, well, I could have left you back there, but I didn't. And MacGyver has like this Ooh, really... point you. Yeah. Match game love you. Love me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they decide, MacGyver says, I'll help you get the weapons if, in return, we blow them up. No one gets them. They don't go to fund any kind of war. They don't go to be sold. We're going to blow them up, and that's going to be the end of it. And, and she agrees to the yeah, plan. Yeah, she agrees. So right away they find him uh, because the, the, the bright red sports car that he drives, and he left that on the pier, Yeah, uh, gave him away. And uh, uh, he's already got a sale lined up. It's it's like – Yeah, they're meeting him there at the dock. Yeah, it's like when I get out of prison on Thursday, meet me there and uh, – <laughs> Let's see. Uh, the commute from the prison should take about two hours, so – Let's say six. Yeah, I mean, did he have that many people on the on the hook? And yeah. he could just say, "Oh yeah, meet me here in twenty minutes. I'll sell you weapons." <laughs> um, and uh, so they're loading up some trucks. When uh, when Brian Ashford is is making this, trying to make the pitch to these arms dealers. Yeah. Uh, he's saying like their arms dealers are saying this stuff's really old. And he's like, "Oh, it still kills people." And MacGyver is the one who says. That yeah. some of it dates back to the Boer War, the right? The Boer War from, uh, you know, like in South, you know, South Southern African nations in the early 1800s and some of it into the 1900s, but early. And it's just like, is that stuff really 
that can't be that old. 80 years old? Yeah. That, that seems really unlikely. I don't know if he was making a joke or... Like or if it should I don't have know. Been... I wouldn't be surprised if some of that stuff was that old. See, but I would have said Korea. Like if you said like this, some of the stuff probably is is the since thirty Korea. years old wouldn't be that big of a complaint though, would it? Thirty years? Like to nineteen versus, versus eighty years. I mean, a gun is a gun. A bomb is a bomb. Like that's true, but I, I don't know. I wouldn't trust anything from from that era. I mean, Although if he was they... trying to give him fruit from the eighteen hundreds, I would be uh, maybe no, thank you. <laughs> but I mean. Uh, you know, grenades work for a long time. Yeah. It, it, it just seemed like such an odd comment and an obscure war to bring up. Well, when when uh, Brian's explaining it away, he kind of just says, well, it's a weapon. It'll kill people, right? I assume that's what you want it for. Yeah. <laughs> and also, his conversation with the buyers is very, very circular. Uh, it's like, let's talk about price. You're asking too much. Do you have the cash? Back to business. How much? Half now. It's like, <laughs> yeah. It, he's not making any they progress. They just needed something to say while MacGyver was in pursuit. Yeah, it's like he's not making any progress in this sale. And so MacGyver comes up with a plan to basically open up a whole bunch of grenades and dump the gunpowder out in a trail and uh, leading under under the trucks. Yeah, that are, to have a bunch more weapons, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> uh, and uh, so he lobs a grenade as a distraction so they don't try to put out the fuse. So they all duck for cover. And uh, they drop the briefcase full of money, which MacGyver runs out and grabs, which is really ballsy. And then he grabbed it, and she pulls up right next to him, and then he hops in the car, and they drive and, out. And and before before John Delancey and his buyers can react to the fuse, it's already underneath the truck. Right. And uh, they, they try to... They don't really duck for cover very well. Yeah, they, they just sort of cling to a, a, a tarp that's laid over some stuff on the side of the room. And, uh, you know, half the warehouse gets blown up, and they just kind of, like, get knocked out. Like, I guess just to give you a closure in the sense that they're not going to be pursued. Yeah. Like, they, they lost everything. The police will probably come into the explosion. They're knocked out. And Brian Ashford will be taken right back to prison. Yeah. And uh, he'll become the new con. I think he's probably not on the prison's good side at this point. That's true. Uh, they have to buy a new fence. Everyone else escaped, probably. <laughs> a couple of guards definitely died yeah. when the PCP lab exploded. Yeah. Um, and the rest of them are all... All with, high on, on PCP with, fumes. <laughs> yeah, the, and some of them are just having withdrawal because now they don't get any PCP. MacGyver's like, just cause more harm than good, really. Yeah. With the exception of the church which he uh, returns to, and we see that his big surprise of all those metal rods actually build a jungle gym. Right. So in addition to the jungle gym that MacGyver has provided, they also tend are going to give the, the church this suitcase. A briefcase full of grenades. <laughs> <laughs> Use these wisely. Yeah. This is the briefcase that we stole from the train previous episode. Yeah. No, uh, we, we paid for this medicine with grenades. <laughs> This is paper money. Uh, uh, I just feel it's Sister Anne is so willing to. At first, she's like, "I can't take this." Yeah, the briefcase is actually full of money. Yeah. First of all, that yeah. they're giving to her, and she, yeah, she she hesitates at first, like, "Oh no, I couldn't possibly." Oh, okay, thank you. Yeah, I'll take all this money. And it's you know, how much money do you think is in this briefcase? Enough to buy all those weapons. I mean, I it's mean, at least a hundred thousand dollars. More, I, I I would say easily eighties like three to five hundred thousand dollars probably. Okay. Of 
uh, and he's I think at some point uh, Ashford has said in in my currency. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I'm assuming that it's U.S. dollars. Although sometimes he does slip into an English accent when he says that's a bloody marvelous uh, yeah. distraction or like. So I'm kind of not sure what currency he means by our or my currency. Yeah, but this the sister Anne seems just as happy about getting half a million dollars in a briefcase as she did about getting a jungle gym for free. Yeah. It's like, it's really not getting across to her how much money this is. I yeah. feel like they really shouldn't be giving it to her. Well, you know, over time the money will be gone, but that jungle gym is going gonna, is gonna to last forever. Gold-plated jungle gym. <laughs> uh, and that's that's the button on the episode is the is the the church is saved. <laughs> yeah, and MacGyver has turned yet another Soviet spy into a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Uh, gosh, he's just... He, he must have so many allies inside the... Soviet Russia. Yeah, like, he is just he is just causing all these agents to defect. That'd be funny for, like, a TV movie. Like, he gets he gets held captive, and, like, every single time a guard comes around, they're like, Hey, it's me, you saved me, remember? Come on out. <laughs> like, it just keeps happening over He's and over. He's got his own underground railroad in, in yeah. Russia. And you had an opportunity to speak with Christina Rayborn, who played Sarah. Yes, I did, and uh, why don't we play that for you now? All right. Well, thank you again so much for speaking with us today. Uh, you're very welcome. Did you audition for the part of Sarah Ashford on MacGyver? Uh, no, I didn't. I believe that I had uh, worked with Don Chaffee on uh, an Airwolf or something. So when this role came up, he thought of me. Oh, okay. So I just came in through my agent, and he asked, uh, do you want to uh, do this uh, MacGyver episode? And I said, Sure. You know, I'd seen it uh, a little bit, and I thought, well, it's, it's an interestingly written show, so yeah. why not? You know, and it's great for the, the young people that were interested in, uh, it, you know, it's almost a like, little bit like Q in uh, the Bond film, so it's kind of nice. Yeah. Do you recall any fun stories from the set? You know, it was so quick. You know, those, those episodics are shot in about five days, I guess, and so... Uh, I don't really recall, except, uh, you know, when we did that um, hillside scene, I know it had been raining, and the, the streets were pretty slick, and I was driving that little Citroen right. car, the, the little red one, and it had really bad brakes, and I had <laughs> to sort of back it up there on that little road, and I was thinking, oh my gosh, this could be the end, <laughs> but fortunately, we managed to, well, I could have gone over the edge, and they could have just cut, and we don't know what happened to, uh, to little Sarah, but, you know, we managed that too. Yeah. I think, did we shoot those uh, dock scenes down in uh, Long Beach, or where was that? You, it it could have been know? Long Beach or San Pedro were both uh, pretty popular I locations. I think it might have been San Pedro. I'm, I'm pretty sure now that it was. Toward the end of the episode, uh, you helped Richard Dean Anderson and John Delancey break out of a prison. Do you, do you happen to remember where the location was they were using as the prison set there? Uh, the prison cell, uh, you know, of course, I was not really in the prison yard. Right. So I don't know where, where they shot that. But that was shot uh, at Paramount, I believe. Oh, okay. On the, on the uh, lot there. It's possible they had a, their own prison yard set, too, for that, that portion of it. Yeah. You know, it was funny because I actually... I was so lucky because, you know, I've moved quite a few times, and I thought, I've got to look at that. So I just, just stumbled into my storage uh, 
area, and I I actually found it. The first thing I laid eyes on was MacGyver, and it's an old VHS, and I thought, wow, I wonder if this still works. <laughs> so I, I watched it, and I don't think I really watched it when it came out. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a really hard time back then to look at any kind of work that I'd done. Sure. It, was, it made me feel terribly uncomfortable. So I watched it, and it was like uh, watching somebody else, of course, because it's been so long ago. Yeah. And I thought, well, this is cute. And not only that, uh, in the beginning sequence there, there was a prison guard, um, and uh, that's played by a friend of mine, Mike Moore. Oh, that's and funny. I had, I had no clue that he was uh, he was in in it until I saw it again. He's a pretty good hand with horses, and we've been to Texas and Colorado and Oklahoma and uh, Arizona and Northern California and rodeoed quite a bit. So, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, yeah, and I just saw him. Uh, I guess it's a couple of years ago now down here at the Westworld. He is also a very good artist. So, uh, you know, when I saw him, I said, my gosh, that is amazing. And then, then of course, I saw um, John DeLancey. Yeah. And uh, sort of my, my quote-unquote brother, yeah. which we know now, of course, was not my brother. But I saw his work in Breaking Bad, and I thought, wow, you know, I actually worked with him. And I felt very good about that because he, you know, he's always a good actor. But uh, he's one of those character guys, and he does such a terrific job. But, uh, you know, if you ask the uh, person on the street, you, they wouldn't necessarily know who John Delancey is. Sure. You know? I, yeah, I think most people go to his Star Trek character, Q, because he was in so many of those over the years. But he did play a, ma- a major part in the whole second season of Breaking Bad. Oh, see, I, uh, yes, absolutely. And I love that character. He did such a terrific job of the fathers. And, uh, no, I didn't even know he, he was in Star Trek. That goes to show you that I'm not a Trekkie. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Although I have uh, written a lot of um, uh, cutting uh, events with... Uh, uh, you know, um, William Chapner and uh, team pending and so forth. So, <laughs> sure. Uh, I should be. I should be a bad, bad girl. <laughs> you enjoyed your time on set, though? Oh, of course. Yeah, Don Chappie was such a lovely guy. It was a terrific uh, director, you know. It was yeah. very fast. And, uh, you know, I felt uh, a little bit like he was like John Glenn on uh, the, Bond. the James Bond movie, Octopussy, that I did. You know, no nonsense, just get to it and do it as quickly as you can. And, you know, not no real direction, but just let's get it done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you actually played uh, Greta Garbo for The Silent Lovers. Um, and I was curious if you had an opportunity to meet or speak with Garbo for that role. Oh, good question. No, I didn't. But uh, the, the fellow that came on the set to uh, help... Um, Brian Keith with the Swedish accent, quote unquote Finnish Swedish accent. Yeah. Um, uh, he was a uh, an acquaintance to Greta Garbo. I think his parents had uh, um, spent a lot of time with her in uh, New York. So as a young boy or young young man, he had uh, had the opportunity to visit with her quite a few times. And he told me that she had a great body sense of humor. Of course, she was a chain smoker. And, um, sure. 
and uh, they they wanted to have that in the movie. But I said, well, I don't I don't smoke. I don't know. <laughs> Can't walk and, and smoke at the same time. But well, I changed that down the road a little bit too. But uh, for the movie, yes, I uh, I wish I could have met her, of course. But she was very private, as I am. But uh, uh, so I guess that's one similarity that. Uh, uh, you know, the director uh, saw the casting lady there. Uh, it was a, quite a deal because I, there were so many uh, actors uh, that wanted that role of Greta Garbo. Well, so, sure, yeah. Uh, and I had flown in from Sweden, and I uh, had been prompted to go and see Ingmar Bergman's uh, agents, the Kohner brothers, up on Sunset. Uh, and so I walked in there, and I met with Walter and Paul. First, Walter, actually, I really adored Walter. And he said, well, Christina, you know, you, you will not get this, this talk because you are um, um, too American. <laughs> you know, he was from Vienna, these two Vienna brothers. So yeah. I said, well, give me a little time, and I'll go down. There was a little uh, film lab on Gramercy Place off of... Uh, uh, Hollywood Boulevard there, and I rented all of her movies, and and, and I sat there in a in a on a vinyl couch that was just kind of breaking up with the stuffing coming out, and <laughs> I watched Greta Garbo movies at infinitum, one after the other, and so after you know my job there, I said uh, I called Walter and I said I think I'm ready for that audition now. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't want to break uh, uh, character. So when I walked into the room, I never let anybody know I could speak uh, English. You know, I, I had a very broken accent because I wanted basically to just concentrate on doing the scene. Sure. So when they asked me, well, do, do, Christina, do you understand what, you know, I thought, yeah, I know the work. I don't talk English very much, but I can do the work. <laughs> so... I just went right into the scene, and they, I guess they thought Garbo stepped, stepped off the boat again. So they just, uh, you know, and I couldn't let them down. So throughout the shoot, I never let them know that I could really break off and speak English without too much of an accent, you know. So I think it was at the end of shooting, um, John Ehrman, who directed it, he said, well, Christina... You know, I think you, we should do it this way. And then he thought better of it. And he said, no, you wouldn't know that because you don't know how to speak English. Uh, I said, well, you know, I put my hands on my hips. And I said, well, John, if you want me to do it that way, I can do it. <laughs> so the, the sound man took his uh, earphones down and he said, Christina, was that you? And I looked at him and I said, oh, I, 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 I just learned a different extra. So and then I went right back. And it wasn't until sometime uh, a couple of years later I ran into John Ehrman and he said, boy, you had us and you had us good. <laughs> so, uh, so that was kind of fun. But, of course, that's also one of the saddest experiences that I've had in my career. So uh, that was uh, a very unfortunate situation for me uh, because um, – sort of like reminiscent of the Tippy Hedren, Alfred Hitchcock situation, because David Wolper, you know, who produced it, executive produced it, yeah. got 
very, very, very fond of me, and they had me signed to this contract at Warner Brothers, and I, uh, um, they called me in, and he, you know, to his big office there, and I stepped in, and he said, well, what do you want to do next, Christina? Do you want to do uh, Queen Christina? you want to do Napoleon and Josephine? I think that was before Jackie Business uh, did that. Uh, he said, you know, anything you want to do. But the caveat was I, I wanted me as his girlfriend. <laughs> and I just backed out of that office. And I say, I think I go home to Sweden now. Yeah. I still had my Swedish accent. I didn't let them know that. They were so enamored by the accent. I figured I might as well stick with it. So, so anyway, I backed out of there. And uh, sure enough, I called Walter and Paul Kohner. And I said, you know what? We're going to lose that contract. Uh, so they said, oh, Christina, why? I said, I'm going <laughs> back to Sweden. And actually, he blackballed me uh, in Hollywood. Oh, wow. And that's the reason I decided to do Octopussy, because they had asked me to do another Bond film before I did Garbo. And I really kind of, you know, I, I wasn't a Bond fan at the time or anything. It's just I wanted to do these little uh, independent Sitaki uh, Fini movies. So, sure. Um, um, so anyway, I really... It, shot myself in the foot, but I had to, you know, stick with my principles, and I've always been kind of a rebel anyway, so, uh, you know, I never looked back, and I didn't regret it, because I had such a fabulous experience on the, uh, on the, you know, on uh, Octopussy, working on that for about six, six months or so, and so I stayed out of town during that time, and um, but it didn't help. It was still, I think, 20 years later, he was still trying to convince me that I should uh, <laughs> meet up with him, quote unquote. Yeah. But I never did. So there's another little Hollywood story for you, and it really kind of saddened me, and it it really soured me on uh, on Hollywood. And so I said, well, I. You know, I I did a you know a fairly decent job in the Garbo thing. I did a big uh, commercial Bond film, and I said, "Well, I think that's enough." <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, so when I came back, you know, people liked Don Chaffee. I never really worked at working. I had um, you know my horses and um, trained horses at Santa Anita and Hollywood Park and. I used to pick up horses that I thought were had talent and and train them and, and sell them. I, in fact, I had one that I bought from uh, in an auction that Joan Embry. I don't know if you remember Joan Embry. She used to come on uh, Johnny Carson and show uh, animals from the uh, San, Di San Diego Zoo. Sure. And uh, uh, she would she uh, she had a little breeding farm down there in Orange County with her husband, and I bought one exceptional little cutting horse from her that turned out to be quite quite the, the find. So you know I kept busy and I did some things. Of course, I worked on General Hospital, did a lot of you know Dallas and Dallas. well, you know it was it was nice. It was nice, but. Uh, you know, now in retrospect, uh, I'm glad everything happened the way it did. I learned a lot, and uh, I think I'm happier now in my life than I've ever been. So, um, well, that's great. Yeah, so so things are things are good, and you know, with the Bond films, 
there's so much interest, and I never really uh, appreciated the franchise as much as I do now because all all us Bond girls are like sisters, and we really care about each other. And well, I, I recently rewatched the um, the episode of uh, that '70s show where it was sort of a Bond girl reunion. Oh yes, that was fun because I didn't know Barbara Carrera before we did that, and she turned out to be such a great friend. What a, what a lovely human being she is. Um, you you had said that you were offered a, a Bond part before the role of Magda. Yes, the one that was uh, you know the skiing one that Carol Bouquet. Uh, it w- it was probably the one just previous to Octopussy, or uh, it was the one with all the skiing. Well, you know, I should know the name of it, but uh, I don't. All right. Um, I, I was also curious if you could uh, expand a little bit about uh, your experience on the actual Bond set. I know that was a, a pretty physical role. Yes. Where do you want to start? <laughs> There's a lot of stories there, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, that was also a part that I got without auditioning, really, um, because I had done that garble film. And then I had also uh, uh, done a little poster where I'm sitting on a Bengal tiger that I produced myself. It was right around the time when they did Star City posters, did the Farrah Fawcett, the very famous Farrah Fawcett poster, and John Travolta, and, you know, all these big stars. So Star City posters, we did this poster, and I said they wanted a white string bikini. I said, well, that sounds kind of like what everybody would do. I said, I'm going to go out and uh, do my own picture, and if you want to buy it after I'm I have the negative, and uh, you can do that. So uh, I hired Bob Holt, I think was his name. He he handled a lot of animals out in Riverside. His father was very big in the movie business. They had uh, zebras, orangutans. They had uh, quite a few lions and tigers. And I don't know if they had an elephant, but I think so. So uh, we came up with a good picture and uh, started to Posters bought it, and I think I was with William Morris at the time. But um, so uh, Barbara Broccoli had seen the poster and said, "Oh my gosh!" Because it just so happened that riding horses, I decided I was going to straddle this Bengal tiger. So I looked <laughs> perfectly relaxed, and uh, the Bengal tiger had—it ju- was like a fraction of a second we caught this picture because you know she went. 450 pounds, and I'm sitting on pure muscle. It was like sitting on a race racehorse in the starting gate. Sure. She sees a little bird. Well, she had a chain around her neck, and then we dropped the chain below so it wouldn't be seen in the picture, and she had like a little uh, string, and I was kind of holding on to the string. Luckily, I didn't have it around my fingers or anything, because once she caught sight of that bird, she was out from underneath me like... An explosion, <laughs> you know, and I just sat there in the dirt. <laughs> what happened? But uh, Buddy Rosenberg shot that picture, and he was a good friend. And he, in fact, in fact, um, very good photographer down on White Street, and he uh, shot the first pictures that I had done in in Hollywood that got me that uh, Fabergé contract. As a matter of fact, so so with that, now see, I'm I'm. <laughs> I'm diverting again. <laughs> so that's so with the, the Garbo and that poster, uh, they called me the 
the broccolis, and I went in there to meet them at, at MGM. And it really was an audition. It was more of a meeting of the minds, and, and they just said, you've got the part. We don't know which part because they hadn't cast Octopus yet. So it, it, you're, you're either going to be Octopus or you're going to be the, uh, the Magna character. Yeah. And uh, I was just glad to get out of town because of what had happened over there at Warner Brothers with uh, Wolfer. You know, I said, i got to get out of this. <laughs> uh, let the dust settle a little bit. So... Um, I was happy, and I knew this was probably early spring, and we were starting the filming uh, sometime, and I think I I left for uh, London in August or something. So I get to London, and I had I still hadn't read the script, and it was very bondish, you know. I'm at this little hotel, and it's all very British, and, you know, everybody's stuffy. And, and all of a sudden, one night... Um, there is a script that slid under my door. And I said, oh, my gosh, there it is. You know, it was like midnight or something. <laughs> so I stayed up reading it, and I, I came to the page there where I'm in bed with Roger, and I'm supposed to say, oh, that's my little octopusy back there, honey. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I called my agent. I said, are you kidding me? You got to get me out of this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, back in the early '80s, we weren't so adventuresome. But if it had been today, of course, it was you know nothing. But anyway, <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I had her uh, send me some double stick carpet tape, and I made this incredible bodice, so I I wasn't going to be you know uh, in bed there uh, slashing everybody on the set. So that was kind of fun because uh, John Glenn came up uh, and he said, uh, Christina, would you mind if I trim that little leaf under your armpit? <laughs> I said, go ahead, make my day. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I have so many stories from the Bond show. I mean, I could probably talk for hours when we don't have that. It's, <laughs> it's a podcast. It should be in and out quick, right? Right. <laughs> you might have to edit this, you know. I, I may have to. I probably will leave a lot of this in because I just anything James Bond is fascinating to me. So yes, it is. So uh, what else? I mean, you know, we could ask me a question. Uh, you you were actually injured during a fight scene, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that was uh, um, kind of a crazy thing. You know, we were on the 007 stage, and nobody could heat that stage. It was really freezing. It was November, and we were in those little skimpy outfits. And I remember not only that in that scene, um, I, you know, in India, uh, we all lost weight because we couldn't, you know, with the water and everything. Oh, and, sure, yeah. Intestinal fortitude. I mean, it was unbelievable. Uh, even Roger uh, complained in his white uh, tuxedo. He said, you know, I don't know if I can do this white tuxedo. Maybe we should have a black one. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we all lost a lot of weight, and they had measured me for that uh, outfit, and it had a very much so be bejeweled belt. And when I came back to London, of course, I started eating the Devonshire cream again. So I probably put on about 10 pounds by the time we were ready to shoot that scene. So in one of the takes, I'm uh, throwing this hand grenade, and I'm stepping backward, and some of the Goonie guys had fallen in an inappropriate 
place for me because he was right behind me. And oh. I, I tripped over him, and, uh, and my abdominal muscles tightened, and every single rhinestone just flew out of that belt. It was like oh, no. a, a gunshot, you know. It was like stones everywhere. Oh, no. <laughs> so luckily, uh, they had a backup um, for for me for that. Now, with the foot, that was because we we had uh, the real bazookas. But uh, for the kick scene, I, they were supposed to um, interchange it with the plastic one. And you know, with the stuff going on, uh, um, somebody just forgot to switch it out. So oh, when no. I kicked it. It was uh, the real deal, the pure steel, and I, I hadn't quite uh, expected that. So, you know, it hurt like crazy, but we were so cold that it, I was anesthetized anyway. So <laughs> Everything I, was I numb. I, I, yeah, I didn't really feel it until the next day, and, you know, I studied medicine, so I, I knew that there was really nothing, you know, you can do about a, a few little bones that... Uh, uh, break in your in your foot area there, and you know I could still walk, so it healed up, and uh, you know I'm no the worse off for it. So <laughs> it was it was just one of those things that happened. In Octopussy, you know, we almost lost Roger's double, and then Paul Weston came in, and he's just a terrific, super intelligent guy. What was the situation where where Roger's double was almost lost? Well, that was, uh, if you recall, the train sequence there where people were, uh, uh, Roger, quote-unquote, Roger was hanging from the Underneath. train. yeah. Yeah, and, uh, 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 and from the, the top of the train there holding on. And oh, okay. then he, he was miscued, from what I understand. You know, he was supposed to bend in for every tree and every pole that uh, the, the train encountered, that he encountered, that were close to the side of the train there. Yeah. And somehow somebody miscued him. And so he hit uh, a pole or a tree. Yeah, I think it was a pole. Uh, head on, and the only reason he survived was uh, that he was able to. He had so much upper body strength that he was able to hang on till the the they were notified and the train could come to to a stop. Wow. But uh, yes, he was in a he was in a full body cast for many 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 months, from what I understand. Oh so, wow. So, but then Paul Weston came in and took over, and, you know, he was a terrific uh, double for Roger as well. So he finished up the film from from that moment on, and I was not on the set when, when that uh, accident happened. But, you know, when I did that backflip over the balcony, um, I wanted to do that stunt myself, and John said, well... And Roger said, oh, darling, didn't do that. But I said, you know, that's on here. I want to have fun. I'm a, you know, I, I ride the racehorses. This is nothing. So uh, You're talking about where you slide down to the first floor in the curtain? Yes, that was a sorry. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> but a little longer than your normal sorry. Your normal sorry is about, um, uh, I think it's six yards or something like that. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, you fold it in, and it's rather lovely how they do that. In fact, I I uh, wore a sari for the premiere in uh, London for Octopussy, and I, I sat just a few seats uh, uh, down from Diana, Princess Diana, so that was uh, a very interesting memory, too, because I couldn't decide whether she was more shy than I was or if I was <laughs> more shy. <laughs> so, 
But anyhow, so that uh, that uh, backflip, that was, um, they had some gymnasts uh, that were standing by, and they didn't know how exactly they were going to do that in terms of falling into a, an airbag that was uh, about 20 feet down below. So I guess she didn't want to do it at the So I came back from lunch, and Trump said, well, you always wanted this uh uh, wanted to do this stunt. Well, there you go. Have at it. <laughs> and then, of course, when we did the uh, finishing uh, in India there, um, one of the stunt um, coordinators, uh, he uh, said, uh, you know, they tried to devise how they were going to do it, and it was very tricky. And uh, he had some sort of slingshot idea, but John Glenn sort of canceled that out because he said, Oh, if we do that, we're going to lose her, and we're going to leave her in London. <laughs> so think of something else. So he did this contraption with, uh, you know, coming down the way we did, and it looked great. And yeah. so there you go. Back in those days, you know, when we didn't have uh, all the tricks, we had to do it for real. Yeah, no, it's nice. it's nice when things were done practical like that. Yes, yes, yes. Well, that's funny, too, uh, coming back to MacGyver, is Richard Dean Anderson in, in this first season ended up uh, breaking his arm. Uh, I think it was offset during a charity skiing event, and he ends up wearing a cast in three episodes, but they were blaming it on a different thing each time. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know that. When did that show start? Was it 84 or 85? It was 85. Um, your, your appearance was toward the end of the first season. Ah, I see. And how many seasons did it go? I went for seven. Yeah, it, went, wow. it did. It did pretty well. What a lovely guy he he was, Richard Dean Anderson. You know, really a sweet human being. I really, um, you know, um, enjoyed being around him. He's just a terrific guy. I, I'm, you know, I'd love to uh, meet up with him again and just say hello. In fact, I was here in Scottsdale uh, last year for one of the big uh, car shows, and I ran into uh, Barry Boswick, who played my John Gilbert in the uh, Garbo film. Yeah. And I hadn't seen him for 30 years. And I said, mm, yeah, I saw him from the back, and I said, wow, there's a good-looking tall man. <laughs> and when he turned, you know, I said, mm, wow. You know? <laughs> so we had, we had dinner, and it was just lovely to see him as well. You know, I met a lot of really super people when, when I worked in, in Hollywood. And one of them was uh, Marvin Page, my old buddy Marvin Page, who took me to so many events and uh, adored me and... Uh, um, you know, cast me in uh, General Hospital as Dr. Greta Ingstrom. I think he even named the character Greta because of <laughs> my Greta Garbo portrayal. I actually so, thought that when I saw it. Yeah, that was Marvin Page. He was really an institution. I think he had two or 3,000 people down at the Egyptian Theater for his memorial oh, wow. uh, a couple of years ago. I had just uh, come into town. I did a little autograph thing, and um, I invited him and uh, one of his friends out to dinner, and a few weeks later, he had been up on Mulholland Drive and gotten sideswiped by uh, someone, so uh, he ended up at uh, Sinai in, in the ICU there and never came out of a coma, from what I understand. That's so too bad. I was really missed him. Um, is, is there any other uh, projects upcoming that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, um, I've been working on uh, something with a friend of mine down in uh, Texas that I don't want to say too much about yet, but it's uh, 
I'm just in the process of getting the financing for that, and uh, um, that could be something really, really, really big. But of course, I won't. Uh, there are only two female roles in the in the entire movie, and uh, uh, I won't be uh, in front of the camera for that one. So. Okay. But I have not, I haven't really been active, you know, since I moved away from Hollywood. I uh I decided uh, you know, to take time out and uh live life and that's exactly what I've been doing and Well, I want to thank you again so much for speaking with us today. I, I really appreciate uh you sharing your time with us. Well, thank you, Patrick. It was uh it was nice speaking with you. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that was really cool of her to share her time with us, and um, I'm actually really glad that she brought up uh, Don Chaffee because uh, he's someone we neglected to mention in discussing this episode, mm. but um, he actually uh, is a pretty well-known director. He directed uh, the Jason and the Argonauts okay. that contained yeah, yeah, yeah. the like, iconic uh, skeleton sword fighting that Ray Harryhausen said was uh, some of or his best work, actually. Um, and uh, Don also directed One Million Years B.C. Raquel... Welch. Raquel Welch, yeah. right. Which, um, every time I think of that movie, I think of Shawshank, Shawshank Redemption yeah, yeah. and Bob Gunton saying, what say you fuzzy britches before <laughs> he throws a, a handful of rocks through the poster in Andy's cell. Um, he also Spoiler directed... alert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you haven't seen that movie, then that's really your own fault. Um, he also uh, directed a lot of uh, iconic television shows, but along the same lines of MacGyver, he did five episodes of The Prisoner and uh, The Avengers, obviously the, the John Steed Emma Peel Avengers. Yeah, um, and the uh, Patrick McGowan Prisoner. Right, yes. Um, and uh, The Avengers, by the way, featuring a fellow Bond girl, Diana Rigg. So, um, and Don also directed Pete's Dragon. That's why I know the name yeah. Pete's Dragon. Oh my god! I figured of those of the things that he's done, that would probably be your favorite. Of yeah, his. absolutely. Yeah, which uh, is actually being remade as we speak. Uh, uh, they began shooting in New Zealand on January twenty sixth, and it's this not a musical. Was, we, our show was three days old when they started <laughs> shooting. It's not a musical. It's not a musical. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what I weird. said. Um, it's due for release August of next year, twenty sixteen. Um, and it's being directed by David Lowry, who just did Ain't Them Body Saints with Casey Affleck, which I, I didn't I've actually heard that's see that supposed one. to be good. Yeah, I, I mean, I've only heard good things, but it it didn't scream this <laughs> Pete's Dragon to me. Yeah. Um, just in terms of the basic plot of it. Um, but this guy, uh, David Lowry, who's directing, also, uh, I mean, predominantly his work is editing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's only directed that one film so far. But before that, he edited um, Upstream Color, which was okay, a pretty well, cool movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um if you haven't seen it, it's bizarre and awesome. Uh, but the the remake of Pete's Dragon is going to star uh, Robert Redford, Bryce Dallas Howard, and Carl Urban. So it might not be terrible. Those are all people that I like. Yeah, but um, but you know, it remains to be seen. We did have Bryce Dallas Howard in uh, Lady in the Water, so yeah, in I'll Jurassic World, right? Uh, before or after this actually airs? I guess. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, we don't know for sure. That was a misstep. Yet we're just predicting things here. <laughs> Um, and, uh, he directed one more MacGyver, which was, uh, Bushmaster, and then actually passed away not long after that in 1990, mm. so he was 73 mm. years old. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the other point that, uh, she had made, uh, during the interview about having been offered a role previously, um, at it, the, in the James Bond, f- right, in the James Bond movies, she, um, she couldn't recall exactly the film, 
and she said that it had a lot of skiing, which kind of factors into a lot of James Bond yeah, movies. Yeah, so yeah. I didn't want to guess right away, but um, it sounds like um, it was it was actually the role of uh, Melina Havelock from For Your Eyes Only, which eventually went to uh, Carol Bouquet, who um, they don't really look a lot alike at yeah, all. Yeah, like you know, because she, she's supposed to be Greek in For right. Your Eyes Only. So having having like a darker hair, but I mean they could have dyed her yeah, hair. Yeah, hair color can yeah. change pretty easily. Yeah, well, I, I I loved all. Uh, I just love you know we both love Bond films. Yeah, yeah. So just getting any kind of background or Bond tidbits, it's always a lot of fun to hear stuff about anything that happened on those uh, on the sets of those productions and uh, the you know getting injured on the set obviously not. You know, is tragic, but it, it's such a great story to tell. Like, sure, I mean, yeah, like yeah. you get to you get to talk about. It. I was injured on a James Bond set, and it's um, even more terrifying for the the double for Roger Moore that ended up getting yeah. so badly hurt. Yeah, but also using a real bazooka. I know on, on the set. I mean, I mean, yeah, it wasn't loaded, obviously. right? But still, oh my gosh! Like, yeah. like I mean, that's the whole the whole concept. I think of stuff like all these accidents that happen with. How epic would that be, though, if like. This was just the crow with a live bazooka around. <laughs> oh, like that's how Roger Moore went out. That would be. Oh man. I don't think he'd even be upset about it. I think that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> that's really what you what you expected James Bond to go out on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I just wanted to thank uh, Christina again for her participation in the show. This is, this is an okay episode. You know, it's it's you know it's it's nice like the playing up the prison escape aspect. Of and an it's episode. nice to see John Delancey anytime. Yeah. I, I mean, I literally just shouted the word Q at my screen when he showed up. Yeah. Yeah, because obviously, like, we love Star Trek The Next Generation, and Q is the iconic character of that show. Uh, if, if yeah, if any if anything anyone takes away from Next Generation, it's usually Q. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and he's just a really fun actor. He's got a great voice. He does a lot of narrating on, uh, on various projects, and, uh, you were saying his father was a musician and yeah, I I, I want to say I read that he was an oboist. Okay. For uh, again, now I want to say the Philadelphia Symphony Orchestra, and so as a result, he comes back and actually narrates some of their programs. Yeah. Like he does like the intros and things like that for them. I guess in honor. But he of does his he does have a great voice and he does a lot Absolutely. of voice acting too. Yeah, uh, yeah, oh yeah. I mean, he's in the Assassin's Creed games. Uh, so yeah, he he's definitely around. I think he was in Johnny Quest too, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he was Doctor Quest. Yeah. The, the, well, this is the real adventures of Johnny Quest. Right. To, yeah. to, to the folks at home, it's not the original run of Hanna Barbera Johnny Quest. It right. Was, no, this is the '90s redo. Yeah, with like the Quest World and yeah Ezekiel Rage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like this episode. I, I do. It's 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 good. And and I do like the twist of it. Yeah, that it's like MacGyver actually got fooled by some people. Because mm-hmm. you think the prison escape is the episode, but it turns into something else after. Which at this point, this is kind of the first time we've really seen that MacGyver just fall full-hearted for someone's yeah plan, uh, like totally unsuspecting. Yeah, like usually there's like a hint of doubt, like when um in Wendy Shaw and Deathlock. Yeah, he like, he was a little he... suspicious of her from the get-go. Yeah. With the uh, whole General Pete trick and yeah, and stuff. like well, the guards didn't chase after him. Yeah, uh, listen to our episode Deathlock for a full explanation of that. Yeah, uh, but That's yeah. episode twelve, by the way. Yeah, so this is like the first time he's gotten really floored and like 
embarrassed. Yeah. It's an embarrassment. And they could very easily have not waited for him to give that hug, and he would have been 100% embarrassed, because they mm-hmm. would have just gotten away with it. Yeah. He would have never known. Yeah. He would have just been like, oh, I guess he got away. Um, okay. I'll go say hi to Sister Anne and let her know I helped her friend. <laughs> they comes back, the whole church is gone. Yeah. <laughs> the whole church it's just was a smoking crater. <laughs> oh, no. They cleaned up their tracks. I wasn't finished building the jungle gym. Uh, the jungle gym is the only thing that made it. All right. Well, that about wraps it up for the escape. If you'd like to reach out to us, uh, we're on Twitter at Opening Gambit. Um, you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Phoenix Foundation Podcast. And as always, you can find us on our website at phoenixfoundationpodcast.com. If you're digging the show, feel free to review us on iTunes. Uh, tune in next week. We're going to be covering Season 1, Episode 21, A Prisoner of Conscience. That's the penultimate episode of the season, so we're getting close here. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and thank you again for listening. Thank you. Thank you.